And just to make sure you're all in the right place, this uh, since everything's switched, this is the John 13 through 17 class, so you won't offend me if you get up and leave. <laughs> you're like, this is not the class I wanted to go to. <laughs> it's over there. <laughs> so let's uh, let's pray. Father, it's such a tremendous joy and privilege to just dive into your word together. Uh, it's it's We're going deep in the mine shaft and just draw, drawing out all sorts of wonderful gold and jewels that are precious truths of your word. And I just pray that you would help us to savor them, to, to marvel at their beauty, and to apply them, to use them in our life. And uh, please help us not to just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And, and may the, the words of Christ in John 13 through 17 just uh, enrich our walk with you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So just real quick summary, uh, recap to get us up to speed in case you weren't here or in case you just need a refresher. Uh, In John 13 through 17, we have just one of the sweetest passages of Scripture where the Apostle John zeroes in on the final hours of Jesus' life. He spends almost 25% of this gospel on these few hours of Jesus' life, and yet there's things that he doesn't mention that the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, mention. Like, he's talking about the upper room discourse, but he never talks about communion. And so here, John is telling us something that he sees as really important. Now, John wrote this at the end of his life. So Matthew, Mark, Luke have already been written. I'm sure he's very aware of them. And at the end of his life, the apostle, who used to be known as the apostle of thunder, now is the apostle of love tenderized by age and ministry and by the Lord. And now he's saying, I really want the people who read this gospel, I want the church to really learn some of these awesome lessons that Jesus was teaching on his final night on earth. And we see that he draws our attention at the very beginning of chapter 13 and verse 1. He says, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that's a central theme throughout chapters 13 through 17, that Jesus loved his own who were in the world, though he was about to depart, to the end. That means to the end of his life on earth, but also fully, completely, perfectly love them in every way possible to the fullest extent possible. And so one of the ways we see that Jesus loved his own to the very end is he helped on this final night prepare his disciples to live life with an invisible Savior. They had spent three years with Jesus, asking him any question they wanted to, getting the perfect answer to any question that they had, having him lead ministry and follow him, and now he's going to be gone. They were going to be orphaned, so to speak. At least that's the way they were going to feel. Though Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And so this passage of Scripture is just a sweet focus where Jesus, knowing he was about to die, doesn't sit around and have a self-pity party, but goes and walks ahead of the disciples, fully knowing what's going to happen, so that He can be glorified, so that He can glorify the Father, so that He can save sinners. And even though He's about to face tremendous pain and suffering, He spends His last hours pouring, loving, pouring into other people for their benefit. 
I mean, that is what we defined love last week when we talked. Love is not a sentimental feeling, not an emotion, but is an act, a choice of sacrificing yourself for the benefit of somebody else. And that's what we see, the perfect example of love in Christ. This final section of John 13, we'll read in verses 12 through 17. Jesus has finished washing the feet, and we marveled at what all that meant uh, last week. But when he had washed their feet, and he put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what, what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So in, in verse 14, what is the command that Jesus is giving his disciples? He just got done foot washing, using it as a symbolic uh, way to teach that Jesus has to wash away your sins. He does it once and for all. and You need no other washing other than a continual uh, practice of confessing your sins to the Lord, but you are fully cleaned already. And so then he turns that symbol and he gives a command. What is that command? Wash one another's feet. Okay. Now, is it a literal command? Is he giving us a new ordinance? Because as far as I'm aware, we don't do any foot washing here at Newcastle. I think it's to serve. I think it's to serve? Okay. Command to serve one another. What in the text might give you that idea? That it's not a literal command, but a but an example. Look at verse 15 in particular. That's kind of the key in understanding that he's not giving you a literal command to wash people's feet. An example? Yeah, I think that's part of the language that helps. I've given you an example. But then he says that you should do just as I have done to you. He doesn't say you should do what I have done to you. He says he use a comparison term. Just as, like, as I have done to you. What was it that he had done to them? He had humbled himself in love, stooped to serve them when nobody else was doing it because of their pride. They were wanting to exalt themselves so nobody's feet were getting washed. And Jesus in the midst of all the disciples squabbling over who would be greater in the kingdom of God, stooped to wash their dirty feet, humbly, sacrificially loving them. Do as I have done to you. Question number 22. Stuart Scott has a great book where he defines humility as, quote, the mindset of Christ a servant's mindset, a focus on God and others, a pursuit of the recognition and the exaltation of God, and a desire to glorify and please God in all things and by all things He has given. So if humility is the key to loving like Jesus, how do we repent of pride and grow in humility? If we are to do as Jesus has done to us, 
and humbly serve other people? How do we repent of our pride and grow in humble service? Well, Paul said to re- regard others as more important than yourselves. Okay, yeah. yeah so Philippians chapter 2. Think about other people. Believe. Acknowledge other people. that They are more important than you. I would say, just in, in, in kind of answering what Steve said, you need to be in God's Word. If you're not in God's Word, you wouldn't know Philippians chapter 2. You wouldn't have that command in your head. You wouldn't have that ringing through you. You wouldn't have the Holy Spirit bringing that to, recalling that to your mind. Hey, I need to be considering other people more important than myself. So I would say the first thing uh, is that is critical to growing in humility is being in God's Word. If you're not in God's Word, you will not, I guarantee it, grow in humility. What would be another way we grow in humility? I actually think there's only one other way. Praying. 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 you got to ask for it. Humility isn't something that you just go and you just do. You have to be humbled by God. Part of that, again, comes from being in His Word, but part of it comes from asking for it. Because it comes from a recognition of who God is and a right understanding of who you are. That's what humility comes from. And so unless God gives you that, again, through His Word, through the Spirit, bringing that to your mind, it's not going to happen. So being in the Word and being in prayer are the two key components. If you want to grow in humility, if you recognize there's some pride in your life, if you're struggling to serve people, whether it's because whatever the reason is, because you... You're struggling with a sin of partialism. You're struggling with um, looking down on somebody or maybe somebody sinned against you and you, you're struggling with viewing them as your enemy or you think a task is too menial. Pray. Be in God's Word. Pray. Ask Him to humble you. Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, it will be done for you. That means when you, not just when you throw on this little magic phrase, Jesus, in your name I pray. It means when you ask anything in accordance with His will, it will be done. And I guarantee you, God's will is for you to be humble. <laughs> so you pray for that, it will happen. It will happen. Question number 23, if a slave is not greater than his master, what do we communicate if we regard any particular task as beneath us? That would be pride coming out and saying that I'm, I'm better than you, right? Better than who? Than, than your slave. Better than everybody, better than even the lowest. Mm-hmm. But if a, who's who's when Jesus says if a slave is not greater than his master, I mean he's drawing a comparison to himself as well, right? So if we, I would agree, I agree with you, Justin. We're saying we're better than other people, but even worse, who are we saying that we're better than? Jesus. Jesus, who stooped to wash the feet even though he was the creator of the universe, who is the worthy king, who even humbled himself further to the point of death for sinners who hated him and were not willing to serve, we are exalting ourselves above Jesus. I mean, that's the form of pride in any way it comes. We are, we are wanting to sit on the throne rather than Jesus. So it's very serious. You know, if we should we recognize this kind of pride in our lives, it's very to, to take it very seriously. 
Sometimes we can kind of view it, you know, Josh used this phrase in his sermon this morning, respectable sins. Sometimes we can view our sins in this way where it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not great, but it's not that bad. We do, we'd be really careful not to have a respectable view of pride. And John 13, this is our last question. In John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. In light of that verse, why is humble love significant for believers to exhibit? Shows others Christ, yeah. It does do that. Remember the whole theme of what does it look like to live with an invisible Savior? We're pointing people to Christ, and so one of the ways we manifest Christ's glory to other people is through sacrificial love. Absolutely. What else? Through obedience, right? The world will know you are my disciples by this. So conversely, opposite... If we are not loving one another, we prove ourselves to not be his disciples. This is an evidence of regeneration. This is an evidence that you have a new heart, a new life given by God, that you have love for other people. Does that mean you're perfect? Of course not. But, uh, you know, the Christian life is like a stock, stock market graph. Uh, you have these ups and downs. Uh, if you're a genuine believer, though, the overall trajectory of that stock market graph will be up to the point of glorification in heaven. But in between there, from the moment of conversion at the bottom to the point of glorification in heaven, you can have some low lows and you can have some high highs. But the overall trajectory, you should be able to see evidence of fruit, that you have love for other people. This is the conclusion. Through a shockingly humble act, this is page 8, last page. Uh, Through a shockingly humble act, Jesus teaches us that we are to live life with an invisible Savior by humbly loving our fellow believers. This is the only suitable response to those who have experienced Christ's love. We are to live in the fellowship of the cleansed and demonstrate the same humble love Jesus showed us. This is one of the ways Jesus continues to manifest His love toward us, even though He's not physically present. Our identification as believers... Our love for Jesus and our joy is wrapped up in our obedience to this command. D.A. Carson summarizes our response to Christ's humble love this way. But now that Jesus, their Lord and teacher, has washed his disciples' feet, an unthinkable act, there is every reason why they also should wash one another's feet, and no conceivable reason for refusing to do so. No emissary has the right to think he is exempt from tasks cheerfully undertaken by the one who sent him, and no slave has the right to judge any menial task beneath him after his master has already performed it. Wow. Frederick Lehman's hymn, The Love of God, written in 1917, has a powerful third verse that describes the love of God this way. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and everyone a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The language of that hymn, and that verse particularly, captures the very last verse of John 21 through 25. 
or 21, 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. As we walk through the rest of John 13 through 17, I hope you just marvel to think like Jesus' love can't even be captured in its fullness just in his time on earth, all of the ways and wonderful things that he did. It's just beyond our ability to capture fully. It's amazing. Living with life with an invisible Savior means we humbly love our fellow believers as well as our enemies, just as Jesus humbly loved us. So that's our first lesson. I tell you what, I hate that we have to move on already because we could probably camp in that section of John for a couple weeks, you know. But we got to keep going. So if we want to get through all of it. So John, the next handout, John 13, verses 18 through 30, we're going to focus on the comfort of sovereignty. We're not going to do a recap just because we already did that. So I'm looking at Roman numeral number two on page one. There are certain names throughout history that are connected to persons who have done terrible things, which creates an unforgettable connection between the name and the evil act. For example, nobody wants to be known as a Benedict Arnold, for this name is synonymous with betrayal. At one point during the Revolutionary War, Arnold held the position of Major General and was trusted by General George Washington so much that he was put in command over Fort Clinton in West Point, New York. But Arnold was upset being passed over for promotion, and he was seeking money to fund an extravagant lifestyle. So Arnold set about deliberately sabotaging the American efforts and secretly plotting surrender to the British forces. Arnold was eventually made a brigadier general in the British forces, and he even led their soldiers into battle against many of the American troops he had once trained. That is betrayal. A less familiar but equally terrible name is Henry Phillips, for this man betrayed the Protestant former, uh, reformer, William Tyndale. Tyndale had been a fugitive from the Church of England for 12 years because of his work translating the Bible into English. Phillips, who had a gambling debt, was offered a large sum of money by church leaders to find Tyndale. Upon finding him, he befriended and earned Tyndale's trust. One day, he lured Tyndale into a narrow passage where soldiers arrested him once Phillips pointed out the fugitive with his finger. Tyndale was imprisoned for two years before he was martyred by strangulation, then burned with fire, and then exhumed so that his body could be blown up, blown up with gunpowder. I mean, that's what a way to go for the Lord. Like, you're hated so much that they can't even let your dead body rest in peace. We're going to blow you up. Hey, that's fine. God can fix that. But no name carries as much baggage and derision as the name Judas. People don't even name their dogs Judas. Why? Because the greatest betrayal ever perpetrated in history was performed by Judas Iscariot. Even though he was one of the 12 disciples who had been with Jesus for three years, he plotted to hand his master over for a large sum of money. And actually, it's not that large of a sum of money, so that's an error. Price of a slave. But what makes Judas's betrayal so shocking and treacherous? He was close to Jesus. He was close to Jesus. Yeah, inner circle. Yep, chosen by Jesus to be in the inner circle. What else? He knew exactly the kind of person Jesus was. 
Mm-hmm. It wasn't that he heard about him and decided that he wanted to get rid of him or whatever. He just he knew everything about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still found it within his heart to betray him. Yeah, saw all these miracles he was doing, heard all these teachings, and yet still hardened in his heart. That's exactly what I was going to say. He huh? thought every single miracle somehow didn't understand it at all. Yeah, it didn't register. Yeah. Betrayed Jesus with a kid. Yeah, yeah, an, an intimate greeting uh, to, to betray somebody to the point to where they were going to die. Why does betrayal hurt so much? Any of you have lived long enough, probably experienced betrayal in some form. Breaks Maybe, trust. Breaks trust. Yeah, you imagine... Jesus for three years sleeping in the same place with all these disciples, eating to get eating meals with them, helping them, um, healing some other. So you think about like uh, Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus healed her. You know, just all these intimate memories formed as they were companions and camaraderie was formed. All of a sudden, for this to happen, yeah, breaks trust. Anything else? Why? Why does betrayal hurt? The closeness. The closeness, yeah. Betrayal usually means that you feel, you think, you thought something about somebody, like they were, that they liked you or that they were your friend, and then it ruins that closeness. There's also just kind of the, you know, we're talking kind of about emotional hurts, but there's also just sometimes a physical hurt, right? If somebody betrays you, they actually take something from you or ruin something for you, make life harder for you. There's a cost to betrayal that you incur, a suffering that you have, that yeah, you take because somebody betrays you. Think about like Benedict Arnold, right? He led British soldiers to kill the very men he had trained. That's that's the cost of betrayal. William Tyndale betrayed to the point where it took his life. Same thing for Jesus. What stands out to you about Jesus's response? To Judas's betrayal. Okay. We'll talk about that. What, 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 how Jesus responded. I don't know. I wouldn't know if I would go so far to say as he forgave Judas for that. Yeah, there was certainly that concern on Jesus' mind that Judas's betrayal could draw them away, and yeah, we'll talk about that some more. But what what else about Jesus' response? I mean, Jesus knew about this in advance. <clears throat> allowed it to happen. That he allowed it to happen. He didn't stop it. I mean, how many of you, if you knew somebody was going to betray you, if you knew there was a plot going on, you had full knowledge of it, the betrayer didn't know that you knew, but you knew, how many of you would just walk into it headlong? I know that you're going to do it, but, you know, I'll, just, I'll let you do it to me. That's it's fine. Jesus did that. In fact, you go to Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Jesus is walking to Jerusalem for the last time knowing that the crucifixion is going to happen, and he's telling the disciples about it, using more vague, a little bit more vague language, saying, hey, the Son of Man is going to be delivered over, so he's not being explicit about how it's going to happen. He's going to be scourged, he's going to be mocked, he's going to be 
and he's going to be put to death. He's going to be crucified. And yet it says in Mark chapter 10, Jesus walked ahead of the disciples, fully confident, knowing what was going to happen, not afraid. And it says that the disciples were walking behind him, afraid. We're going to see why. So turn the page, page two of your handout. Even though Judas's betrayal was a terrible thing, it was all under the sovereign control and purposes of God. At any point, Jesus could have thwarted Judas's plans, but he didn't. Because they weren't Judas's plans. They were the plans of the Father that would lead to Christ's exaltation and the salvation of sinners. As we will see in John 13, 18 through 30, Jesus uh, Je- there shouldn't be apostrophe there. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that what was about to take place was no accident, and that he knew about the betrayal in advance, and yet he was in complete control the whole time. So we're going to look at the comfort of Jesus' sovereign choice. In John 13, 10 through 11, the very kind of end of what uh, passage we just got done reviewing, we've already learned that Jesus knew about the betrayal. It was actively in motion. Jesus said to Peter, the, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So although Jesus knew this, the disciples had no idea who was going to betray Jesus, nor could they even fathom that it would be one of the 12 disciples. Up to this point in time, Jesus has alluded to the betrayal, but he hasn't revealed the person yet. And in our text this morning, Jesus is going to unmask the betrayer. Let's start at the beginning of our text, John 13, verses 18 through 20. He says, I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So in verse 17, Jesus concluded his prior lesson saying, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them but then immediately follows it in verse 18 saying, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. What two things does Jesus reveal to the disciples there in verse 18? He was sovereign. Okay. He is sovereign. What, What part of the verse makes you say that? Well, he said, I'm telling you all this stuff ahead of time, yeah. so that when it happens, you'll know that I'm, you know, I was able to re- predict before it happened, mm-hmm. therefore I am in control of the events that did happen. Okay. Particularly, though, in verse 18, what, what, makes, it, what makes you say sovereign? Because you could predict something, and that doesn't necessarily make you sovereign. You, if you know what's going to happen in the future, it doesn't necessarily mean. I know who I have chosen. I know whom I have chosen. I would be the sovereign, right? Sovereignty means that you have complete exercise to do as you please. Nothing can thwart that. Whatever I want, it happens. Nothing can stop me. No one can change my mind. I am sovereign. We, in our Western society, really struggle with the concept of sovereignty at times because we're so far removed from a monarchy system of government 
where I, one example I always like to use is Solomon. Uh, it's a good example of sovereignty, even just on a human level, where as the king of Israel, he had such great wisdom that you had the two prostitutes come before him with the dead baby, and they were arguing about whose, whose baby it was that died. And, and so Solomon's presented with this challenging case. And you know what he does to help draw out the right mom? Bring me a sword. I'm going to cut this baby in half. Nobody bats an eye. Nobody says, you can't do that. Oh, he can. He's the king. That's sovereignty. That's sovereignty. So we learn that Jesus is sovereign. He says in, in revealing this, I know whom I have chosen. But when he says, I'm not speaking of all of you, what do we learn about that? What, what is he saying in that phrase? Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So he's saying, not just happy are you. Sometimes blessed means happy if you do this. I think it includes that meaning, but more means if you do, if you obey my command to love one another, God's favor is upon you. His grace is upon you. So here he's saying, if you do this command, your God's grace is upon you. I'm not speaking of all of you, though. What's he saying there? Yeah. How is he how is he distinguishing Judas from the rest of the disciples? Judas doesn't belong to Jesus. He's not blessed. He's not the recipient of the same kind of grace that the other disciples are. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, helped, he helpfully paraphrases the connection between 17 and 18. He says this, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. But not all of you am I speaking and holding out this prospect of blessedness. I know the ones I have chosen for myself to be my apostles. There is one who is, though chosen, is not blessed. But as to the fact that I chose him, this happened in order that Scripture may be fulfilled. So sometimes in Scripture, when we, when we see God use the word chosen, it does refer to salvation. Here, I do not believe that it does. I believe it refers to uh, choosing Judas as an apostle. And I believe that because you go back and look at John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus uses the same word in the same way to refer to apostleship. He says, have I not chosen all of you? And yet one of you is a devil. He's not talking about salvation there in that context. Same thing here. I'm not speaking of all of you, though I know whom I have chosen. So Jesus here is bringing out a really important point. Look, uh, turn the page to page three. Question number five. What temptation was Jesus preparing the disciples to face by unmasking the betrayer? Another way you could think about the question is, if Jesus hadn't told them that Judas was going to betray and then it happened, what would you have struggled with if you were a disciple? Doubt. Some doubt? Doubt about what? That Jesus was in control or that he knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Some doubt about whether Jesus was in control, if he knew what he was doing. Is he even God? I mean, how could he let this happen? Jesus was telling us that he's God. 
He's the Son of God, that He has all this power. He's healing people. He's telling us His truth. He's making these big statements throughout Scripture that I am equating Himself with Yahweh. But He didn't know this was going to happen, or He couldn't stop it? Man, was He really the Son of God? Now he's Because remember, the whole crucifixion, that wasn't on anybody's radar. Jesus kept telling them that it was going to happen, but they were like, well, I don't get this because you're the conquering Messiah. You're supposed to come in here and usher in the kingdom of God right now. They were not tracking. None of them were tracking. And so then to see their precious Lord and Savior betrayed and crucified was going to be jarring. So Jesus is helping prepare them from the temptation to doubt who he was and that to doubt that he was in control. How would Jesus's quotation of the prophecy from Psalm 41:9 help with that? So that's what he's quoting from when he says in John chapter 13 quotes there about the eating the bread and lifting up the heel. Um, Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's Psalm 41.9. How is quoting from there helpful in resisting the temptation to doubt? It's showing that he's had a plan since the beginning of time. Yeah. It's not Jesus who's just in control. God the Father. God the Father writing in Scripture in the, in the Old Testament, Psalm 41.9. This is going to happen. It's all according to plan. All according to plan. Importantly, not only did Jesus foreknow this event, it also fulfilled scriptural prediction. And so like the thrice-repeated reference to Jesus' foreknowledge earlier in John 13, this underscores God's and Jesus' utter sovereignty and control over the entire set of proceedings. Jesus wanted to make sure that the rest of the disciples understood when the betrayal and arrest took place that he was not a surprise victim of Judas's treachery. They might wonder why he chose Judas and how he could have so completely misjudged his character. Therefore, the Lord cl- clarified his earlier declaration that the, that the disciples were spiritually clean. However, he did not speak of all of them in his omniscience. He knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean, only the ones whom he had chosen. Question number six. In verse 19, Jesus said, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Why does Jesus, based on that verse, spend so much time telling the disciples about the betrayal? To let them know that he had Yeah. And even more specifically, who does Jesus want them to know who he is? What does he say? That you may believe that I am he. That is one of those significant I am statements. There's several throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus wants the disciples, question number seven, Jesus wants the disciples to believe that I am he, which is an allusion to Exodus 3, 13 through 14. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So what is the significance of Jesus' allusion to Exodus? He's absolute. He's absolute. Absolute what? 
God, yeah. There's no uh, getting dancing around this one. He's equating himself, calling himself equal with Yahweh. I am. And in, in, you know, in the connection of what all that means, I am, is the fact that Jesus is self-existent, that he is in complete control, and that nothing is outside of his control. Verse 8, or sorry, question number 8. In verse 20, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives, uh, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. How does this give the fuller meaning to his claim to deity? Yeah, if, if God sent me and you accept me, then you accept God. Like he's intimating that we, I have such a close relationship with God the Father that if you accept me, you're accepting God. It's like, whoa. Again, he's just further solidifying that nobody can squirrel their way out of, well, Jesus wasn't really claiming to be God. You see, no, he just, he gives more statements upon more statements to just tightly weave and close the gap of argument saying, I am the Son of God. I am deity. And I am in control. Only Jesus' resurrection and exaltation and His gift of the Spirit would utterly clear the minds and answer their questions. But the careful groundwork Jesus here lays proved sufficiently strong to keep the disciples together. They did not scatter immediately after the crucifixion, but kept together until his resurrection fully vindicated him and established their faith. We see throughout so far in this passage, we're gonna we have one more chunk here to look at, but Jesus loving his disciples to the end sought to protect their faith. That is so encouraging to us, knowing that when Jesus loves us to the end, He knows that there's going to be things that come up in our life that are going to challenge our trust in God. And here Jesus is, knowing the weakness of His disciples, is trying to help them, not trying. He does help them so that they don't flee, so that they don't doubt. They're going to wrestle, right? They all immediately flee when Jesus is betrayed, right? The soldiers come and they arrest Jesus. Then the disciples scatter. But they don't fully scatter completely. Some of them continue to follow, but at a distance. And ultimately, even after Jesus is crucified, they remain there in Jerusalem together to await to see what would happen. Because Jesus had sought to share with them, I am in control of this. I am not afraid. This is a part of the plan. So there's great comfort in Jesus' sovereign love, as we see in the next chunk of our scripture, John 13, 20 through, 21 through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered him, It is he who I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. 
Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are doing, going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. After announcing a betrayer in their midst, Jesus experienced severe mental and spiritual distress. According to verse 21, why was Jesus troubled in his spirit? I think there's probably a number of things. Um, one of them was obviously that one of his closest associates was going to betray him, but I, I wonder too if he wasn't looking ahead at Judas's end, you know, and, and realizing that, you know, everything that I've done to express love to Judas is going to result in his eternity in hell, yeah. you know. I think you're right on. This is a marvel. God's sovereignty does not reduce God to some cold, far distant being with no emotion. Now, God's emotions are not like our emotions, but He is not a static God. He is dynamic. And even though He knows what's going to happen, even though He ordained for this to happen before the foundation of the world, still troubled his heart, caused him grief on multiple levels, as Steve pointed out, that he was going to be betrayed by a, a someone he loved, by someone he had done so many kind things to. And then I think too, like you said, Steve, grieved over the eternal destiny of Judas and his fate. If that doesn't make the circuit breakers pop in your head trying to think about how those two things go together, uh, then you got to think about some longer. Because as I think, man, God's sovereignty and yet still troubled by this and broken in his heart over this, it's just, it's astounding. God is not like us. He is far beyond us. What does this, you know, Jesus being troubled in his spirit, what does that reveal about Jesus's relationship with Judas? That he truly loved him just as much as the rest of the disciples. Yeah. He loved someone who was his enemy, truly and genuinely. Several things troubled the Lord. His unrequited love for Judas, Judas's ingratitude for all the, un, uh, for all the kindness he had shown him, the malevolent presence of Satan, who would shortly possess Judas, the fearful fate that awaited Judas in hell, and the knowledge that the betrayal would lead him to the cross with its sin-bearing and separation from the Father. Those are the things that troubled Jesus. And we learn later in John 17, 12, Jesus refers to Judas as the son of perdition. That'd be the son of damnation. So we kind of mentioned earlier, as we were talking about, was Judas forgiven for his sin? He was condemned for his betrayal. He was not just for the betrayal, but for unbelief. Again, uh, J.C. Ryle says in his commentary, it was the bitter sorrow of seeing a chosen apostle deliberately becoming an apostate, a backslider, and an ungrateful traitor. 
That it was a foreseen sorrow from the beginning, we need, we need not doubt. But sorrow is not less acute because long foreseen. According to verse 22 in our text, the disciples had no clue who the betrayer could be. Why didn't the disciples suspect that Judas would be the betrayer? Why were they clueless? Yeah. Jesus didn't treat him any differently. Do you know, do you guys remember uh, just from your own study of God's word, what Judas's role, what his, some of his responsibilities were within the 12 disciples? He was the, he was the guy that carried the money. Paid yeah. The yeah, he held the money bags. He was the CFO of the 12 disciples group of their ministry. <laughs> So, you know, it's just astounding. You know, and he spent three years with them going through difficulties, you know, and things like that. They weren't rich. They weren't, it wasn't, they weren't getting rich off of their ministry. You know, often sleeping in people's homes who'd let them come in. Not always having food ready on hand. It wasn't a ministry full of comforts. So here he is sacrificing with them, doing work with them, seeing the miracles, doing the ministry. Going out two by two. So he was with Different ones I know, yeah. He was sent on one of those missionary trips with a two-by-two. Two. This is something that's just relatable. When we, uh, Many of you have probably experienced where you know somebody who professed Christ only to walk away after some kind of sin involved in their life, whatever it was, that they showed themselves to be an unbeliever, and you just never saw it coming. How it grieves your heart in those circumstances. You can grow up in church all your life. You can show external outward signs. You can profess the name of Christ. And it never really truly revealed until later that inside your heart, you were still a dead man, a dead woman. Judas is an example of that. Yeah? Question? Yeah. Colin Smith said on one of his radio, talking about Judas, that get to heaven, we're going to meet people that came to know Christ because of Judas. Yeah. Because he was with the twelve. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Just because they're, they are kind of sobered by his example into well, evaluating their life? Back to the kind of, he was part of the two-by-two two going out. Mm -hmm. so they professed the good news. They, oh, I see what you're saying. So we're yeah. part of the 500 that Jesus... Yeah. Saw after his resurrection were some of them be there because of Judas's resurrection. Yeah, yeah, very, very well could have been. Just goes to show you that God saves people despite our fallenness and weakness, right? It's the message of the gospel, and it's the Holy Spirit that works the change in people and not us, that he can even use an unbeliever saying true things but doesn't believe it himself and save people. Yeah, that's a great observation. The, the table that the disciples were sitting at was not a long rectangle table as, de as depicted in Da Vinci's, you know, the Lord's Supper, where they're all sitting at this one rectangular table. Uh, instead, it was often a U-shaped table sitting about a foot off the ground where the guests would recline on pillows, leaning on their left arm with feet pointed away from the head of the table, and where the host would sit at the head of the table with seats on his immediate left and right, which were considered places of honor. So turn the page to page five. 
John was reclining or leaning on Jesus during the supper, and so Peter gestured to him to ask Jesus who the betrayer was. Jesus indicated who it was by giving Judas a special morsel of the unleavened bread dipped in a bowl of fruit puree, a mixture of dates, raisins, and sour wine known also as sop. This was considered a special honor, and the fact that Jesus handed it to Judas meant he was close by to Jesus in a place of honor. So again, contributing, as you guys mentioned, to the fact that nobody saw this coming. It's like, here's Judas sitting at the place of honor at the table, and here's Jesus giving him even a special honored piece of food. It's like, why would Jesus do that to someone who's going to betray him? This was something that caught everyone off guard. Question 11, why did Jesus identify Judas through this honorable gesture rather than just tell John, hey, it's Judas? I mean, why, why do that? Because they might have wanted to kill him. <laughs> I do believe that that's, that's a big part. Yeah, if all the disciples had just all of a sudden blatantly, hey, it's, John, it's Judas. I, you know, what did, what did Peter do to Malthus when Malthus tried to lay hands on Jesus and rest him? He probably had this. He had pulled out that sword. small dagger, and he I don't think he was going for the ear of Malthus. I think he was going for his head. So I think, yeah, the, the disciples would have uh, ganged up on Judas and probably beat him to a pulp. That's one way. What is another reason why Jesus doesn't just say, it's Judas? He commands us to love our enemies. Oh, man. Jesus loved his enemy to the end. I believe Jesus handing this morsel to Judas was Jesus giving him a final plea, a final call to follow him and to love him, not betray him. Even though Jesus was sovereign, even though this was going to be fulfilled in Scripture, this is going to tie your brain in knots, Jesus still was giving this, showing love to Judas and saying, love me, follow me as I have loved you. D.A. Carson said, And thus the sign of Judas's treachery was at the same time an expression of offered friendship. It amounted to an offer of friendship at the last moment. Question 12, Since the disciples were still confused about who the betrayer was, even after Jesus gave the bread to Judas, what does that indicate about how Jesus communicated his answer to John? Right? You, have, you have Peter gesturing silently, pantomiming, Hey, John, find out. Find out who this is. John looks over to Jesus. Can you tell us who it's going to be? Jesus says, it's going to be the person I give this morsel to. How do you think that discussion went down? Since the disciples still didn't know. Quietly. What? Quietly. Quietly. I never, you know, as I study that, I never kind of read this passage that way. I kind of always walked away from this passage going like, how did these guys not know? Jesus is like, I'm going to dip this bread in this bowl and I'm going to give it to the betrayer. And then right after that, they're like, who's it going to be? <laughs> and it's like, oh, you know, that makes sense that Jesus whispered it to John. And for the reasons you guys said earlier, why did he whisper? Why didn't he just say, it's Judas? It's because it was... If the he would not allow the disciples to interfere with the plan that was going to lead to the cross. For the sake of time, we're going to skip a few of these questions that are awesome questions, but 
We're going to turn the page, final page, page six. Jesus, now, uh, after Jesus gave him the sop, says that Satan immediately, uh, Satan entered him, and he immediately got up and left, and it was night. So Jesus, no longer just speaking to Judas, but to Satan also, tells him, I think tersely, what you are about to do, go and do it quickly. Or in other words, go do it faster. You're on my timetable, not on yours. This continued to show how Jesus was not a victim, but was in control the entire time. Even Satan is on Jesus' timetable and under his sovereign command. So question 17, are you talking about God's sovereignty over horrible, evil circumstances? What makes the sovereignty of Jesus comforting to us in our own life. He still has everything under control. Has everything under control? I agree with you. I'm going to just push it a little further, though. If I'm struggling in the hospital, going through severe pain from cancer, and you tell me Jesus has everything under control, that's not really going to make me feel a whole lot better in the moment. But it's not wrong. What else about Jesus' sovereignty makes it a comfort? Not only does he have it in control, but there's a, a real purpose for why you're going through what you're going through. And you're going through that suffering so that he will ultimately be glorified. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Jesus has a purpose. Like I just I grieve for those who do not know Christ when they go through suffering because their suffering is meaningless to them. That there is no grander purpose in it. Now, I do believe God has a purpose in it, but you know, I think all suffering is meant to turn us toward God. But if you don't know Christ, you're missing out on that purpose. But even if you tell, oh, yeah, good. And sometimes that suffering is to bring someone else to Christ. Could be, yeah, absolutely. So even if you tell me, well, Tyson, you're suffering. Jesus is in control. That's good to know. And he's got a purpose for it. That's good to know. But that's still like, what? Am I just am I just some object that God can use to torture for his purposes? Is that what's going on here? That's great that he gets the glory. I'm in a lot of pain right now. What other aspect of Jesus' sovereignty would be the final kind of leg of it that brings comfort? Keeps his promises. Keeps his promises. Mm-hmm. So what kind of scripture would you think would pop into your mind that would that you would go to in talking to somebody about that? Anybody. I'll just put that on you. <laughs> put you on the spot. About Romans 8, 28. For we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. That is, I think, the last leg of Jesus' sovereignty that makes it comforting. He's in control. This is not spiraling out of control. Jesus is in heaven going, ah, what's going to happen? I don't know. Oh, Tyson's in trouble. He's got a purpose for it. It's not meaningless. And that purpose is for my good. It's also for his glory. Those two are intertwined. It's for my good. And I still may not like it. You'd be like Job. Okay, my family, my, my children are all dead. I've lost all my possessions and my health is horrendous right now. 
but God has got a purpose for this. It is for His glory and it is also for my good. And even though this is painful, I can trust in that. That is faith. Taking the knowledge you have about God's character and His word and His promises and trusting yourself to it, even when you don't know the outcome. We walk by faith and not by sight. We could spend a lot more time talking about some of the lessons the disciples learned from this example of Judas, but for the sake of time, let's just read the conclusion. After receiving the final offer of friendship, Judas immediately left to do what God had sovereignly ordained for him to do, to initiate the death of Christ for sins of the world by means of his betrayal. The text ends with what seems to be an innocuous statement, and it was night. But this statement is more than just a reminiscent memory. Not only had literal darkness descended upon the land for nighttime, but the power of darkness. But through what would amount to be the greatest evil deed ever committed, the crucifixion of the Son of God would bring about the greatest good ever possible. No one saw it coming. God's ways are not our ways, but His ways are perfect. Though we may not know why God brings us through difficult circumstances, we can trust in and find comfort in His sovereign purposes. This is the very skip to the bottom. The writer of Hebrews summarizes, I think, the main application of this passage well in 13, 5-6. For he said, for he has said, Jesus, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say that the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. So we can find comfort in the midst of any evil circumstance, confidently knowing Jesus is in complete control and that he will work it out for the good of, uh, for our good and his glory. So with that, we will be dismissed, and we will start on the next section of John, chapter 13, actually 14, next week. So thank you very much.